um, as Caleb alluded to, that we're continuing in our interlude series of the year on the Articles of the Apostles' Creed. But before we dive too deep into our statement of belief from the creed that we're going to be exploring this morning, I want to try and kind of resituate us in our theme for the year, which is the kind of thing that we'll do over and over as the year goes on. So in 2023, our big theme is discipleship. That's our big idea of the year, the big thing we're talking about. And discipleship, as we've discussed, is the name that we give to this journey that we go on as adherents to Christian faith. And the starting point of that journey of Christian faith is our conversion or the moment of our decision that uh, the way of Jesus is something that we want to make our own way. And in our particular uh, sort of branch of Christian faith, we mark that moment with baptism. And then the end point of this journey is called sanctification or our eventual restoration to being the kind of people that we believe that we are intended to be, use some of the language from our last series. And that end point of sanctification is something that happens kind of on the far side um, of our life. It's actually beyond our lives. And it includes being full participants with God in God's redeemed and restored creation. And this is what we hope for. It's the hope of Christian faith. But between those two points, right, is the journey itself. And that's where Christian life happens. It's also the space in which we can become disciples by participating, even now, wherever we are on that journey, learning to participate increasingly in the work that God is doing, the work that he's doing inside of us, the work that he's doing inside of other people, and the work that he's doing in the world. But there is something distinct about Christianity here, um, and this is what it is. If we really are following the way of Jesus on this path and this journey, the transformation that is happening internally in us actually frees us up and opens our eyes to look externally, to look outside of ourselves with more empathy. The thing that's happening internally is intended to pour out externally. And for me, this is why I've stayed on my own journey as a Christian. If there really is something like a purpose in this life for me, then it has to be something. I believe it has to be something that moves beyond me and moves out into the lives of other people. I can sense my need for that deep down. I'm made for love, like to receive it and to share it. I can feel that I'm made that way, and I would imagine you can feel that you're made that way too. But I also know that I can't do that. I can't share love, right, if I don't know deeply what it is inside myself. And the Christian story, a thing that I've drawn to in this story is the way that it resolves that particular conundrum. Because God is increasingly revealing His love for me. And as I experience His love for me, I'm learning, right, to bear witness to that love by pouring myself out for others. Not from a place of obligation, right, but from a place of generosity and a place of compassion. And so, Our hope for 2023 here at Revolution is that this is the year that we all take intentional steps along that same journey towards that goal. 
And so in January, we spent three weeks talking about how you might prepare for those kinds of steps by being intentional and purposeful in the ways that we practice things like stillness and listening and participation, right? And then in our last series, we talked about how as we lean or as we learn openness towards God when we're still, when we're listening, when we seek to participate, as we learn openness towards God in our, in our lives, we gain an ability to kind of face the reality of our own sin, which is a thing that an encounter with God is going to reveal to us, right? That's going to show us the ways that we're not living up to what we're made to live up to. And so we can face the reality of our sin with new awareness of God's compassion towards us and his commitment to save us and restore us. So we marry those two things together, like the realization of our own sin as well as reminders of that promise that God's taking care of it and taking care of us. And from that place of hope, right, we learned that our ongoing challenge as we're walking that journey of our faith, our ongoing challenge is to let go increasingly let go, to surrender our actual lives bit by bit to a God who is patient and who we can trust wants what is best for us. That's what we do on this journey is let go. And in these intermittent sermons on the Apostles' Creed, our goal is to kind of keep coming back to these reminders of who God is as we're walking that journey of increasingly learning to let go so that we can well, really, so that we can better learn to trust Him. That as we give a little, we're reminded of who He is. Now, if that sounds a bit too deep or technical, I will say I'm with you. I should have opened with a joke. I mean, I didn't say the thing about the sub for a little while. But let me offer a gentle analogy. We are building a real relationship with God, a real relationship. That's what discipleship is. And just like any real relationship, depth is a matter of give and take, right? We give a little more of ourselves. We take a chance. We're a little more vulnerable, a little more honest with somebody. And then we wait, right, to see how they respond and what they give back to see if, if there's a reciprocal thing happening that can help us to go deeper, and trust in another person, when you make a new friend or when you build a new relationship, trust doesn't happen all at once. And so if where you're at this morning, right, is that you have taken one step towards openness, towards God, just by walking in the door today, then this morning's message is intended to kind of reassure you about who God is, to tell you more about what God is giving back and offering of himself and then the hope is that as we learn more about who he is and how he feels about us, then we'll be able to open up more towards him, and then our relationship with God will grow. So, all that is a way of getting into today. And the question is, what is God offering you about himself? What is God offering you about himself? And the second statement of the Apostles' Creed is this. It's the longest one we're going to cover in this whole series, but we're going to get through it today. Not that the sermon's long. I mean, it is now because I'm stalling, but like, it reads like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. If you're looking for a one-sentence summary today, here it is. What God is offering 
is himself in the person of his son, Jesus, for the purpose of human relationship. What God is offering is himself in the person of his son, Jesus, for the purpose of human relationship. This is a cornerstone belief of the Christian story, that Jesus was born here so that we might know God as God knows us. Now, inside that chunk of the creed, there are four distinct beliefs that we need to cover, and then we'll talk about how those beliefs can impact our lives this week and how they can impact our lives every week. And the first of those beliefs is that Jesus is not just human, but that Jesus is God. Specifically, in the creed, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus' conception, like by the Holy Spirit, is an essential mystery in this story. I say mystery because we don't understand what in the world that means or how that could possibly happen. If anybody tells you they've got that all figured out, like this is the mechanics of how Jesus came into the world, like just ignore them. Like they don't know. Nobody knows. And it's okay not to know stuff. But it's an essential mystery because it communicates to us something about Jesus' holiness. His holiness. It communicates that Jesus is actually and fully God on earth. The origin of this particular belief, as strange as it might sound to us, the origin of this belief is actually older than the Christian church. The divinity of Jesus is one of the, cre- the key Christian tenets that even shows up in Jesus' own lifetime as this unavoidable part of his story. We know that his mother, Mary, believed this about Jesus. We know this because she says so herself in the gospel accounts of her pregnancy that we find in the books of Matthew and Luke. We also know that his father, Joseph, believed this about him, as we see in those same accounts, which are, of course, accounts that we might add describe a scenario that is pretty culturally humiliating for Joseph as Mary's betrothed husband when she becomes pregnant. And we also see these beliefs, not just in his parents, Mary and Joseph, we see these beliefs at the outset of Jesus' own ministry, when at the very beginning of things, when he's an adult, he's baptized by a man named John, and there are all these witnesses at this moment, at Jesus' baptism, who hear this audible voice come down from the sky and declare this to be true about Jesus. Luke's gospel records the moment like this. He says, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from there saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So, Interesting story. What does it mean? Well, it means that Jesus is understood to be God's own son by his parents and by his followers. He also, for the record, says about himself in all four of the Gospels. It's also an explicit accusation in the record of his Roman trial before Pilate, who says this about him. And then even at his death, a centurion, a Roman centurion, stands in front of his dead body says before even more witnesses, surely this man was the Son of God. So although there are those who see Jesus as a mortal man of great wisdom, God-like perhaps, Christian belief is that he's more than that, that he is actually God on earth. And that's a part of Christian belief from before there's even a clear statement of Christian belief. 
And I think this matters because it means that the Jesus that goes around doing miracles isn't channeling the power of some other God. He's doing things with his own power. And I think that if you are identifying as a Christian or pursuing Christian faith, it is plausible and you can believe on relatively reasonable grounds this truth that Jesus is divine. But of course, Jesus' divinity, although it's the first of those four statements in the creed this week, is only part of the story because the second belief here is that Jesus is not just fully human, right? But that he is, I'm sorry, that he's not just fully God, but that he is also somehow fully human. In the creed, it reads like this, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, why is this so important to early Christians? Well, it's important because it means that Jesus, this God-man, didn't crash into earth like a meteor or something and then just like start doing miracles. It means that instead, the God of the universe showed up here among us with a belly button. It means that, that God cried and ate and slept like any other baby does and didn't sleep the way babies don't that God grew in like fits and starts and was gawky and awkward and like didn't know how to walk for a while. That there was a time when he couldn't speak. That there was a time, and this is what struck me this week, that there was a time when like God looked in wonder at the same world that he created. Which is all a way of saying that God, that Jesus is fully human. He's not just some meteor crash God. He's human. Now, why does that belief matter? Well, it matters because it means that God is not apart from us. So we talked about in our last series, God is committed to full identification with human beings. We don't know why God is like this other than what he has told us, which is that it's somehow a matter of love. Jesus is God among us, that he's not sympathizing with us in our brokenness, right? That he's not sympathizing with us, you know, as we experience the injustice of the world, that he's empathizing, having chosen to wholly relate with us by experiencing the kind of stuff that we experience in the kind of world that we've made. As the Apostle Paul writes, Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. So why do we care? Powerful God, powerful Jesus is probably a little more appealing than like, you know, baby not able to walk Jesus. Well, we by believing this, what we're doing is we're proclaiming the mysterious depths of God's concern for us. It's a, an insufficient comparison, but consider like the child standing in the shallow end of the pool and afraid to like learn how to swim. Like God is the parent who gets in the water with them and then holds out his arms and says, swim to me. But of course, like the water in this metaphor is like turbulent because it's not the shallow end of a pool. It's like this chaotic world. And this leads to the third belief in this section of the creed, which is that Jesus suffered. 
Creed reads, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And this, I think, is like where our beliefs about Jesus take um, a turn for the truly radical. Because we believe that the God of the universe chose not just to be human with us, but chose in doing so to know suffering, to feel actual pain, and to endure actual injustice. The theologian Jürgen Moltmann, who lived through the bombing of his hometown in Germany during World War II and eventually became a prisoner of war, once noted that those who experience genuine suffering in the world seldom ask, as we sometimes think that they would, why would a just or a good God allow this to happen? That's not the question people who are suffering, at least in Moltmann's experience, ask. Instead, what they ask is this, where is God in my suffering? And what stirred Moltmann himself to a life devoted to Christian faith was his personal experience as a young person that God's answer to that question is revealed in the suffering of Jesus. That in Jesus and Jesus' suffering, God is saying to the person asking, where are you? I'm here. I'm here with you. Moltmann saw this as the radical distinction of the Christian story which differentiates it from all other faiths. We believe God fully understands what it is like to be us. He knows grief. He knows what it is like to be wronged. He knows what it is like to be abused. He knows, and this is crazy, but he chooses to know what it is like to feel helpless, which is something that God can only do through the Jesus story know helplessness. Now, earlier I said that we can think of our interaction with the creed in terms of this back and forth of a new and a growing relationship or a new and growing friendship. And I would argue that Jesus' suffering is the ultimate expression of God's willingness to be vulnerable, not just with us, but to be vulnerable to us to allow us humans to actually hurt him. I'm not saying that we should aim to do that, that we should like prove out this relationship by trying to hurt God all the time. That's not what I'm after. But in this relational context, it is how God, to use, Paul, uh, to use Paul's terms from his letter to the Philippians we read a moment ago, it's how God empties himself for the sake of encouraging us to deeply trust him to allow us to hurt him. If our own journey of discipleship is one that is marked by our own gradual willingness to let go of ourselves, like we said at the beginning today, it is in Jesus' suffering that we see God letting go of himself first. We're not being asked to do something that God has not already done. We're not experiencing things that God did not choose himself to experience. And so there's all a way of saying that that identification that God's pursuing with human beings is something that runs like all the way down in our experience to the very root of who and what we are. And of course, at the bottom, even underneath the suffering of the human experience, at the end of all things for us is death. 
And that's also our fourth belief in this section of the creed about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Jesus died. He actually died. His heart stopped beating. His body, like, cooled. Life, which is the very thing that his own breath breathed into the world, emptied out from him. And there is like no running from the, the craziness of this belief, but also the importance of this belief in the early church. Universally, the apostles and the leaders of the Christian community preached this, preached that Jesus died. At the outset of the very first recorded Christian sermon given by Jesus' friend Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter says this, Fellow Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. Nobody, nobody in the tradition tries to skirt around this. Jesus dies. But again, like why? Why? Well, I think there's like the big story answer, right? The big story answer to why Jesus died is because by living a sin sinless life, by virtue of being both God and man at once, Jesus' death is able to pay the eternal price for the sins of the world. He sacrificed in this way that echoes how lambs were once sacrificed in Israel for the atonement of all sin. And he absorbs the just consequences and the punishment of sin into himself and takes it down with him to the grave. That's the big story answer to why Jesus has to die. But there's also a little story answer too. And the little story answer not only guarantees the destination of your journey, which is what the big story part's doing, right? Like how my sins can be forgiven. The little story answer also, I think, is something that can fill you up as you walk that journey out day after day after day. And that answer, yet again, is this, that God goes first. That God goes first. Even if we can trust that all that eternal stuff is dealt with, that the consequences of our sin have been resolved, there is still, for each and every one of us, this earthly mortal consequence that we can't quite shake, and that is that we still break stuff. We still live in a world that's broken where other people break things. We hurt each other. We hurt our own bodies. And eventually our bodies give out, and eventually we're going to die. And we're all, I think, pretty rightly afraid of this. I'm afraid of this. And so I think it is significant that we believe and claim that God walks that road ahead of us too. And in doing so, he doesn't just do the big picture thing, which is conquer our sin. I think he also does the little picture thing, which is conquer our fear. God dies, and yet he is still no less God, which means that we can die and still be no less his children. Now, the hope, of course, is still to come. 
Because not only does Jesus die, we believe that Jesus is resurrected. We sang about it. You can skip ahead in the creed one more line and find that out if you want. But it's the third statement in the creed. So we're going to like, we're holding it off. We're going to save that for next month. We'll get to the resurrection. For now, we're just going to settle here. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus was holy God, divine in ways that I cannot be. I believe that Jesus was also holy human, that he was alive in the very same ways that I can be. I believe that Jesus knew suffering just as I have known suffering. I believe that Jesus died just as I will one day die. Now, do I know all of those things about Jesus fully? No, I don't. Do I know the mechanics of how they all happen? No, I can't. But those beliefs matter to me, and those beliefs feed my relationship with God. As I walk that journey that we talked about by increasingly letting go of the things that are important to me in my life, as I increasingly let those things go and trust who I am and how I live to God, He, at the same moment, is reminding me that He has already let go and trusted me, even at tremendous cost to Himself. Which is a reminder to me that this God I am trying to build a relationship with is near, is not far. And that this God I'm trying to build a relationship with loves me like truly, he loves me. Now, that's all fine and good. Why does it matter? How does it change the way that we live our lives? The answer, I am convinced, is confidence. Confidence. In my small group this past week, we talked about the problem of blind trust in Christian faith. Many of us remembered a version of Christianity that we had picked up at some point or another in our childhood which taught us that real faith like jumps all the way in. That real faith doesn't ask questions, that it doesn't hold back, that it's a genuine trust fall that we just let go and let God, as the bumper sticker famously says. But as we talked about this in our group, we realized how far this is from the picture that we actually see of how God behaves in the Bible. The God that we get to know through Scripture never asks for blind trust. That instead, the God we meet in Scripture is always going first. He's always reaching out to people and revealing Himself to them. He's always revealing His love for them before, before He asks them to take a step and follow Him. The God that we meet in Scripture is deeply and mysteriously relational. And as our creator, he seems to know quite profoundly how relationships are supposed to work. When God asks Adam in Genesis to follow his rules in the Garden of Eden, he does so only after he sees Adam's loneliness and meets that need for him by creating a partner. He knows Adam. He shows Adam he knows him before he asks him to do a thing or not do a thing in that case. 
when he asks Noah to build an ark, he does so only after he tells Noah that he sees him, he knows his character, and he knows his, his faithfulness. Later, when he invites Abraham right, into a covenant relationship, he does this crazy thing where at the critical moment when they're supposed to actually do the covenant deal, he makes Abraham mysteriously fall asleep, and then God takes on both the obligations and the consequence part of the covenant, of their pledge. God doesn't ask us to do stuff that he doesn't demonstrate his own willingness to do at immense cost to himself. And Jesus is this once and for all example of this aspect of God's character, that he is born like us, he lives like us, he suffers like us, he loves like us, and he dies like us. And when we say that we believe in him, we're saying that we believe in a God who makes himself vulnerable to us. And only after we proclaim that we believe that, only after we proclaim that we believe God came and made himself vulnerable to us, only then are we actually asked to begin the process of laying everything down in trust before him. So what I believe about Jesus gives me confidence in God's pursuit of me, which leads him all the way down to the bottom of who and what I am which is a way of saying that like, my trust isn't blind at all. Which, of course, shouldn't be the least bit surprising when I'm putting that trust in somebody who makes a point of helping blind people to see. When you put your trust in Jesus, you can let your guard down towards God because God's already let his guard down towards you. And you can rest in him because he's shown you how much he loves you. And the second thing is that you can begin to let your guard down towards each other. You can follow after Jesus' way by being similarly bold in your own love, in your own vulnerability. You can go first in your relationships. Now, might that cause you pain? Like, yeah, it might. It certainly did for him. But your security doesn't come from them, from the other person. Your security comes from God who holds you in this life and holds you forever. So as we're closing, what I want you to consider, what I found myself thinking about even last night on the submarine when I was reading through this sermon and being like on watch. I'm like, what am I talking about in the morning? Like, I've got to roll right in. I hope, that I rem I hope it was good whenever I wrote it. But what I've been thinking about is this. Can you, can you imagine the impact a community of people who are in the habit of going first might have? Can you imagine what hope might spring from a people who cancel debts, who feed others, who seek to help, who choose to forgive and choose to love before their neighbors have done anything to earn that from them? When we're saying that we believe in Jesus, we are saying that we're willing to put our trust in his way, in his example. And if we can spend this year, these next nine months, right, like if we can spend this year learning to grow in that example together, 
in that direction. I can't tell you how excited I am to see where that would take us, to see what kind of an impact a group of people choosing to try and little by little live more and more after the example of a God who goes first. See what impact that has in your families, in your relationship with your kids, in your marriages, in your friendships, in your neighborhood, at work. Are you willing to explore Jesus' example in one small way this week? And if you are, like, what would it be? What's one place where you can follow in that kind of example, in that example of going first? And as you consider that, like, consider along with it. Where might it lead to? Where might it lead?